Welcome to the Branches Podcast. Following the lead of Jesus, we seek to embrace people regardless of their background or their present ground in the hope they find holy ground. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about the reckless love of Jesus or our community of faith, please visit our website at branchesoc.com. So the surprise is I get to work with Kim, and if you know me, I'm very direct and I want to know what's really going on. And so I've gotten to hear Kim's life story, but also in getting to know Kim's life story, I've gotten to hear... Um, how her mom, Jean, has seen her life and how they've walked together through this. Now, you've heard us bring up different people and have them up front share from Acts 1.8. In Acts 1.8, since we're going through Acts, it says this. It says, and the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's talking to the disciples. And then you will be my witnesses or you will go and tell people about me. And so we've had different people here share about him, about Jesus. And so hearing Kim's story and then hearing Gene's involvement in it, they have so much to share about what they've seen Jesus do in Kim's life. I don't know what Gene's going to share about her life. We'll see if she slips that in or maybe it's just going to be all about Kim. But we want you to leave not thinking about Gene and not thinking about Kim. But we want you to leave thinking, watching what God has done because he's done something amazing. So let me pray for them and then um, they'll take it from here. Father God, may the world know who you are. May the world know what you have done. May the world see what you do. Give us ears to hear this morning, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. I'm glad I said that first. Feels loud, but okay. Hi. I was, I was 26 years old. That morning, we had gone to the doctor hoping to get prescriptions for pain. When I say we, I mean me and my first husband. I was feeling so sick that I couldn't even get out of the car to go into the doctor appointment. We were in an unfamiliar neighborhood. Uh, We had traveled about an hour from home to go to this doctor because we heard he would write us whatever prescription we wanted. And, yeah, funny. Okay. Um, So my husband, Chris, went in without me. I I just didn't want to get out of the car. He had a legitimate back injury. um, And so... Unfortunately, it was easy for him to exploit uh, what the doctors had to offer. Um, He returned to the car with two prescriptions for Xanax, which was not great. Um, The the doctor didn't, he he had restrictions put on him. So obviously, he had been having trouble um, with overprescribing and... Uh, He was able to get me a prescription without me physically going in. So that just kind of tells you where we're at. Um, We drove straight to a pharmacy right down the street. It was, it's interesting because our local pharmacies gave up on us a lot lot sooner than the doctors did. 
and refused uh, for us to fill any of our prescriptions. Um, we were abusing that system. So the I remember the pharmacy we went into. It was so odd. It was um, there was only a couple little like aisles. It was a little mom and pop place. Uh, it was Russian. All of the posters were in Russian, and um, the the aisles were just really sparse. Like what was on the shelves, and I I just remember just waiting there, and it didn't matter. All of that didn't matter because they weren't going to ask us any questions. And we were able to head home. On the way home, Chris called some of our friends, um, told them to come over and pick up some beer. Um, we didn't usually drink at that, that time um, because our choice was prescriptions. Uh, opiates, if we could get it. Um, but obviously... Um, that wasn't always easily attainable. So the Xanax would help stay off um, the sickness that we were feeling. We were so sick. And um, so it, it would be enough, like, to either make us feel a little better or just help us go to sleep until we could figure out um, how to get something stronger um, or where to get something stronger. I remember um, I just kind of took a couple of those, sat myself um, in, in a big leather couch that kind of faced the room. We lived in a little one-bedroom place. Um, it was open. The kitchen was open in the living room. There was a beat-up sofa kind of like dividing the room in half and the dining room table behind that. And the chair that I was in faced the room. So I could just watch the evening unfold. And um, they were drinking. It wasn't excessive. They didn't buy very much. Um, but I remember hearing in Chris's pocket, that was my husband, Chris, in Chris's pocket, the jangle, the, the clanking, the, the noise of the pill bottle shaking. And every time he heard it, I could see it like, in his eyes that he heard it, and then he would take it out, and he would take one. And uh, for him, when he took Xanax, he blacked out. Um, but we were home, so we were safe. It was okay, and I fell asleep. When I woke up in the morning, I just made myself a cup of coffee, sat down, probably put on the TV. Um, it was late morning, I'm sure, and our friend who had been over the night before, Drew, called and he said, oh, Chris and I made plans, so I told him to come on over, and uh, he came over, he let himself in, and um, I said, just go, just go wake, wake him up yourself, you know, just go wake Chris up, because who knows how long he could sleep for. Uh, so I watched him walk about the 30 feet to our bedroom through the center room. And when he got there, he, he screamed. And he said, something's wrong. Something's wrong with Chris. Like, come. And so I ran back there. And as soon as I turned the corner and I saw him, like, I knew I knew 
but I was just frantic. So I made him help me take Chris towards the bathroom. I don't know why. I turned on the shower to splash the water on his face, and Drew called 911. Thank God. And um, he put the phone down next to me on speakerphone. And I was just so panicked, and the woman had to calm me down. She wouldn't help me unless I calmed down. And so I had to calm down, and I had to breathe, and then she walked me through CPR. And I performed CPR until the ambulance arrived. But I can tell you that was just the most eerie thing because he was gone. There was nothing there. So when I breathed in, it was like just ripping my heart out. But I did it until the ambulance arrived. When they came, you know, they took over the scene and people tried to pull me out. And I kept running back in and I was just couldn't believe what was happening. Um, I heard them say, like, call it in, you know, DOA. I was just so angry. I was just screaming at them not to say that. So I was 26 years old when I sat in a funeral home and signed the papers for my husband's arrangements. It was so surreal. It was an out-of-body experience. <laughs> the days leading up to the funeral, those are pretty much a blur for me. Um, but I do remember walking into the chapel doors on the day of the funeral. And the place seemed full to me. But as I entered, the whole room hushed. And I could hear people whispering, there she is. It's her. Because they didn't all know me. And um, they just became background noise. And I walked down the center aisle. And he was so peaceful sitting there. And I kissed him goodbye, and I took my seat. I could, I could go on and on, but I actually um, am just so privileged to sit here with my mom. And um, she has part of the story, and she has a whole different perspective. And so um, thanks for coming and sharing it. I'll let you talk about it. Um, yeah. I just want to say that um, the date that all happened was 666. Just to add emphasis to the horror of it. Okay. Um, my part of the story, actually, um, I want to start back a couple years because um, I got a, a frantic phone call from Kim. Um, she and Chris were on their way back from uh, maybe a pretty heavy party situation out of Oakland, San Francisco area, and um, she called me and just said, I'm in trouble. And um, that is my first God lifeline because for Kim to reach out to me um, and let her heart um, be bared and to cry and to be scared and to let me see it, um, 
was not something that happened frequently. So I feel like that was my my first God moment where um, God had his hand on us and he he forced her hand and she called. Um, but she called to say she was in trouble. So um, their drug addiction was um, obviously out of control and she was calling me and I drove down there. Um, they lived in Auburn, California. I lived in the mountains of Idaho. It took me nine, 10 hours to get there and um, drove up to her house and called and called and called and I couldn't get her to wake up and they had a giant Rottweiler that was shaking the house with his barking so I wasn't gonna go in there until I could get her awake. I knew she was there, um, but she wouldn't wake up. So um, I sat out there, excuse me, for um, a good hour or so, and then finally she answered the phone, and um, I told her I was there, and she opened the door, and I was shocked. <laughs> she was like 85 pounds, and just dark circles under her eyes and just scary looking. And um, I just hugged her and went into mom mode and looked around this house that was filthy with no food, maybe a couple drawers that had some candy in it um, and piles of laundry. And it was just an unbelievable thing to step into and see my oldest daughter like that. And um, I just did the, okay, we can do this thing and started cleaning, doing laundry. Um, let's, we can fix this, we can do this. And um, took them shopping for food, started cooking meals. Um, I had another uh, surreal moment at Sam's when we went there to get food and I'm in one aisle shopping and I see out of the corner of my eye uh, what I thought was some little old lady that needed to sit down and I was um, took a closer look and it was Kim and she couldn't make it through this shopping trip to get food. She was having to sit down and Chris was there. He was trying to help. But, um, so uh, Anyway, I, uh, so that was just the first of several trips that I took over the years to try to, uh, over those couple years, to get down there to help them. And every time it would be cooking, cleaning, setting them up, even writing down finances. Like Kim still at a point had, it, had her job. Chris had a job. I'm like, you guys can do this. You know, they were always seemed to be out of money. Their credit card bills were always racked up. And I would go down there and step in and try to take care of it. Luckily, also during these couple years, I joined Al-Anon. So that um, my thinking was I'm going to get tools to be able to help them. But really what it was was tools to help set boundaries for me so that... Um, so that I wasn't doing all the enabling things that parents tend to want to do. So um, I'd say out of Al-Anon, I had uh, my greatest epiphany from that was a realization that um, 
every time I stepped into their lives to cook and clean and lay out their finances and construct a budget, I was in essence telling them I didn't believe that they could do it. So that aha moment caused me to step back and admit that this was all bigger than me um, and that um, this was something I had to lay at God's feet and trust that he would make a way uh, where there seemed to be no way. And I wanted to jump in also and just add, like, during those couple years, I mean, Chris and I sincerely wanted to get sober. We made so many attempts. Uh, we had so many different plans. We uh, went to his parents. We went to my parents. We, um, we separated from each other to try and do it separately. Um, and none of our plans worked. I mean, we had a desire to have a life together. It wasn't, um, this wasn't the plan. Like, uh, and I think um, through, through all of these plans and through all of that, it was, I mean, part of it was the, the physical, the physical pain of withdrawal um, and where we are at. And we did a couple of times uh, go to a methadone clinic or have methadone prescribed. And I honestly, and that pain was just even so much deeper into my bones to try and then get off of that that was trying to help us to get off of the other thing. It was so painful. And if one of us, um, even if we had the resolve for ourselves to watch each other, um, somehow one of us would always cave. We wanted to help the other one not feel so sick. So um, we, we were making attempts, and we sincerely wanted to have a, a good life. That was our intention. So um, I was at work when I got the next phone call that Chris had died. And honestly, I couldn't even wrap my head around it. I was, my husband had called me and I just said, Chris, who? Because it just couldn't, I mean, I think your, your mind does a lot to protect you from painful things. And so I'm thinking of a friend of mine that had a son named Chris, but it was our Chris. It was our Chris. And once I wrapped my head around the fact that Chris had died, my next thought was, where's Kim? I panicked, wondering what had happened. And um, we, uh, we found out that people from her church had her um, and would keep her until I could get there, which brings me to the next miracle, was that through this time of addiction, when they lost jobs, when they were you know, not waking up in their daily lives until one in the afternoon, two in the afternoon. On Sunday mornings, they would get up at 7.30 and get ready for church. And, I, you know, I witnessed it when I was down there. I knew that they were still doing it. And I just feel like for Kim and Chris, both of them were raised in a church they both belonged to youth group. They both had really strong church connections. And I feel like the Holy Spirit was indeed calling them into that place of community with their church family. And in this case, it was the church family who swooped in 
and grabbed her and held her, and I was so grateful that she was safe until I could fly in. Somebody picked me up at the airport and got me to um, that person's house, and I walked in, and Kim said, and this is a quote, I need to get home to wash the bath mat for our garage sale. And I just pulled her down onto my lap and just cried because that's, who says that, you know, when your husband just died? That was very bizarre. Um, that led into a really chaotic week of funeral arrangements but it led to um, people finding out, um, both at the, in the church community, of course, family was finding out. People are coming in to try to help. But it also led to um, this culture of addiction, of culture of people that were trying to come and help by giving her more drugs. So... That whole week was a vigil to stand guard, basically, and try to get us cleaned up and out of that house. And our plan began to formulate to get her back to Idaho with us, um, get her out of there. We were, um, I was reaching out towards um, people that just popped into my mind, which I feel like was the Lord again, because I really didn't know what to do to navigate getting her home without crashing. I mean, she was not only doing, um, you know, prescription drugs, but when they couldn't get that, their um, heroin was a part of that. And so there was, there was a, um, you know, I just, I didn't know enough about it to say, yes, I can drive her home for 10 hours and not have her crash and burn along the way. So we, you know, God gave me connections, a doctor who agreed from Idaho to help dose her down. We were literally finding pills in all the stuff at their house to try, and I'd take a picture and send it to this doctor, and she'd say, yes, keep that. No, throw that away. Yeah, give her one of these after, you know, four hours on the road, and just learning drug stuff along the way, um, to the point where, like, I believe during this whole time that Kim wanted to make sure their drug dealer knew when Chris's service would be. So she said, I'm going there because you can't just call him. He had to go there. And it was, you know, midnight, one o'clock. And I'm like, then I'm going too. And so, hello, riding into some strange mobile home park in the middle of the night and standing between her and whoever to say, yeah, just tell him the information and then we're getting back out of here. You're not going to hand her anything. I'm sure she got handed things anyway. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, the funeral itself, when she says she walks, walked in there, I, I just want to say it was, it was another out-of-body experience. She walked in there, and the first couple rows were family, his family, our family, then the church, a few rows of church people, and then milling around and um, standing all in the back were addicts and drug dealers. And, and 
you know, they loved her too. And it's a very real love. And they try to help the best way they can, which is hand her drugs. But, um, you know, absolutely not helpful. But um, we made it through that. And uh, I count that as a miracle too. (laughs) There's... There's so much leading up to the story. Like, um, obviously, a lot happened before I was 26. So we'll hit rewind uh, just for a minute and go back to high school. So um, as my mom mentioned, I grew up in a really small town in Idaho. I um, grew up with my parents and two younger sisters. Our family is and was very loving and supportive. I always felt cared for by my family. Uh, We went to church regularly. I was plugged into the youth group, and I joined in and went to Young Life Camp. Um, I, I was baptized in middle school. I made a sincere decision to do that. I love the Lord, and, um, You know, I would say by anyone's measure, my life was pretty great. And I I always want to add that because I feel like sometimes there's a stigma or a judgment and people would love to default this story to some sort of um, upbringing issue or a traumatic experience that maybe made my path uh, go this direction and Um, For me, that was not the case. I did not have any sort of um, abusive or alcoholic behaviors happening in our home. It was was wonderful. And both of my sisters, um, you know, chose to go to college and have beautiful families and not do a bunch of drugs. So (laughs) I would say... um, I just wanted to add that in because I feel like, especially as a church family, um, we have an obligation to love people where they're at. And um, if we can't get past our own judgment, uh, then we can't really know their story. So I experimented. Um, I would say I started out with like a typical experimenting in high school, drinking, uh, smoking pot, um, I can look back and say, once I started doing that, I um, started doing it a little differently than my peers, Um, something I really, really enjoyed it, first of all, and uh, I did it to excess, so um, I I wasn't just like, oh, I'll just have a couple drinks. Um, If I was drinking, I was drinking as much as I possibly could. And I think the first time I drank, I actually did black out um, and somehow got home. So uh, all of that just felt like me. Like I was just a normal teenager, like experimenting, a little bit of partying, um, not really that big a deal. Um, I did notice some of my friends... uh, started to taper off, and I found new friends that weren't tapering off. So that um, was a little bit of a different behavior looking back, um, you know, from 
my peers that were just experimenting. Um, I, when I was an outgoing kid, um, and I think that, like, I could put myself in any social setting or peer setting and feel pretty confident in that. Um, it wasn't like um, this helped lubricate that. However, I did have like that normal, what I consider normal teenage angst, fear of being rejected, like awkward feelings, um, whether I could hide them well or not, they were still there. And something, um, putting this outside substance into my body helped me uh, let go of all of that. And uh, I love to not feel my feelings, so it covered up all that. And I didn't have to think about tomorrow. Um, so as far as my part during high school, I was getting really good, decent grades at the end. Really good grades turned into decent grades. And um, I really felt like that was my only obligation as a teenager. And so I didn't see a problem with my behaviors at all. What do you think, Mom? I got another phone call. <laughs> So this phone call came from a teacher along with her judgment. She talked about judgment, and I felt heavily judged at this point. So uh, uh, this teacher called uh, their environmental science class, had taken a field trip into the Frank Church Wilderness, which if anybody knows, you there's no other way to get there but flying. So the kids all got flown in. There was, I don't even know, three or four planes full of kids that got flown into a wilderness. And evidently, my daughter um, had a uh, pipe with her, and maybe there was a little bit uh, left in that pipe. So she smoked pot back there in the Frank Church wilderness where the teachers basically had, they felt that that put her in danger. They're next to a raging river, and so they had to stay up anyway. Once they got within cell phone distance, um, a call came in um, to the school that said that there was, uh, the, the teacher said that she said that there was a problem with a student on the plane. It got called in to dispatch as a problem with a plane, and the planes fly directly over the high school. Um, at that point, the school was making a decision whether or not to evacuate the school and uh, then I get the call, please come and meet us at the airport. And when I got there, there was every emergency vehicle within a 30-mile radius. There were fire trucks, ambulances, police cars, sheriff's cars, all of them with their lights going. And we rounded the corner, and I, I know I said, please, God, don't let this be because of Kim. And it was absolutely because of Kim. So we get there. I'm standing on the tarmac waiting, but they weren't going to let the kids that got shuffled onto Kim's airplane off until they could bring drug dogs up from Cascade, which was a half hour away. So we all stood there waiting. Pretty sure I was crying. Pretty sure my husband was like, are you kidding me? And <laughs> there was a lot, <laughs> a lot going on. They got, the kids got off. Um, they got, everything got sniffed. 
um, I got told that Kim is suspended, just take her home. And I did that, but then I got called in to meet with the teacher, the principal, a school board member. And that's where the judgment came. The teacher just said, I can't believe that you don't, didn't know, that you didn't know that Kim was using anything. And evidently her MO was to leave at lunchtime, maybe have a few puffs and go back to school. So the teachers knew, but I did not know. And none, nobody had ever called me to say, we suspect that this might be happening. So I honestly did not know. And um, when we did know, um, we took what we felt like was appropriate action, put her into counseling. I went to counseling, you know, do all the things that you think you're supposed to be doing as a parent to try to turn this around. I was appalled that, that she was doing this and felt like it was okay. Um, you know, we gave her consequences. She had a beloved Volkswagen bus and I said she couldn't drive it and that was the first rise I got out of her through all the counseling. She was basically going through the motions telling everybody what they wanted to hear until that happened and then she was pissed. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it moving forward. I'm sure my mom would be happy to tell you plenty more high school shenanigans. I might call shenanigans. She might call delinquency uh, later on. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump us backward to where we left off and maybe even um, click through it a little bit quicker so we keep it on time. That's okay. So um, after Chris's funeral, I did go back to Idaho. Um, and I went there. I was there about six weeks. And in that time, I agreed to go for 28-day treatment uh, here in beautiful Southern California. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to wait. Now I get to jump in because that was... I kept searching while she's home. We're dosing her down with a doctor's help to get her as clean as possible. But in the meantime, every day, I'm doing Google search. And probably you don't think of Google search as a God thing. But I, <laughs> every day, plugging in, you know, here's, here's the things she's addicted to. Here's what we need. Here's, and coming up with the same places. Well, she wouldn't agree to you know, Seattle, she wouldn't agree to places that might have rain or clouds or, and, and I'm plugging in the same stuff, coming up with the same information and literally getting so frustrated because she's, she's not being exactly calm while she's there with us for those six weeks. People came out of the woodwork that heard she was in town and wanted to party with her. Small town. And Very my... The counselor we were going to suggested if I try to parent her at that point, she will cut and run. So I was not trying, you know, I wasn't trying to parent, but I am quickly trying to find a place that I can get her out, back out of McCall. And literally one night, just so frustrated, I just laid on the floor before the Lord and just said, we 
can't do this. I'm not finding answers. I'm not finding where she'll go. I'm not, it's not working. And the next morning, I plugged in the same stuff, the same words, and got a place in Dana Point, California, that popped up that I had never seen. And I, I told my husband, and he said, okay, if she'll agree, and she agreed, because it's Dana Point. And, <laughs> and, um, and that is, to me, a miracle. I mean, I just felt like I got to the end of myself, and there was God. So he showed up when I needed him. We also needed the money to be able to do this. We didn't have $30,000 sitting around to plunk into 28, the first 28 days of rehab. But what we did have was that my husband, who had started a, a different business, had applied for a revolving line of credit for his business. And we took all of it to get her to rehab. So I feel like I'm sitting here and a lot of you know me and so a lot of you know the miracle that my life is right now. If you didn't know what it was like then, maybe now you can see like the radical change. But um, for those of you that maybe don't know, I showed up for those 28 days and I expected to do 28 days and start my life somewhere new. Um, during that time, though, I was so broken that I can say I absolutely surrendered myself. When my mom's talking about reaching the end of ourself, all of my best thinking and all of my best plans got me where I was that day, and it wasn't looking good. So I surrendered. I surrendered what was next. And so I took suggestion uh, during that time. I realized that I probably, um, I absolutely would not be able to drink or use like a normal person. That's a thing. And um, that I had to completely abstain. So there are so many miracles. Um, and I can touch on a few, but I, you know, I walked through... Um, 28 days, just just one day, um, you know, just get through this day. And I, and then the next 28 days, I, I would walk to my little job. I got a job at a coffee shop and I would just say, God, just, just give me the wisdom to know your will and the strength to carry it out today. And I, you know, came to the end of these times. Like, it's not like I could work at a coffee shop and afford to live in Dana Point. So when I decided to stay, it was only because God was setting that up for me all along the way. You know, I didn't have money for that third month. My mom uh, helped. Um, they took care of that first month. And then my grandma helped with the second month. And then after that, I didn't know. I mean, Three days before I'm out on the street, my church that Chris and I had been going to called and said, we have been praying about this, and we want to help with Kim's recovery, and this is the amount we want to give, and it was the exact amount we needed for one more month, and I walked 
that one day, each day, just saying my prayer just for the day. That's because it's just our daily bread, you know. That's all we're promised. And, uh, and I did that faithfully every day, and I did the work. And then at the end of that, I was a few days out from not having a place to live. What am I going to do? And the house manager calls and says, oh, will you, will you be the house mom of, you know, a sober living? And you can live there for free. Um, and then you just take responsibility of this. And I worked in sober livings for about a year. Um, you know, I gave up what I thought was my right to a good, normal life. I accepted that God saved me. I accepted his grace and his mercy. But I didn't believe deep down that I was going to get another shot at marriage, family, all that. I, I really thought like I blew it. But I was okay with that at the same time. I was surrendered to that. And um, if you know now, you know, I am married to an amazing man who I met in Dana Point while I was working at that coffee shop. And um, when we got pregnant with Donovan, I, um, you know, we went in for those, those appointments. And his due date was the anniversary of Chris's death. And it was on every piece of paper. And it was every doctor's appointment. And at first, I... I just didn't know if that was okay. And then I saw God was just giving me back a date on a calendar that I lost and giving light to that. It was a beautiful miracle. And he wasn't born on that date. I don't think very many kids are born on their due date. But um, <laughs> so uh, I, I just... I just hope that when you're listening to what we have to say today, that you can see how little this miracle has to do with me. And um, that instead it was ceaseless work to get out of my own way. That was what I was doing. Just getting out of my own way so God could do his work. Um. I requested the song Reckless Love for today um, because when I hear it, it makes me think of that time when God was pursuing Kim and Chris with a kind of love that only God has. I mean, as much as we as parents love our children, um, and I do feel like um, this same time made me feel that way too. Like, I'm going to go after her with a reckless love. And when we did this um, for this, the Women's Backyard Series, um, Steph had asked me uh, how I could keep stepping back into this when it wasn't working. And my gut response was, well, how could I not? But I've really thought about that, uh, that question. And I feel like... Um, when you give birth and you have that gift of a child and you raise that child and you see who they are, and I, in spite of what Kim and Chris were doing, I knew her. And I knew in spite of her bad choices and her, um, her wrong paths and the dark cloud of addiction, 
that was over her, I, I could still see her in there. And I, I felt like I had to keep going, keep pushing, and keep trying. And I feel like that's, that's how God sees each of us, that we're, he sees you. He sees you deep inside, and he wants you, and he's going to pursue you. And he, he feels like you're redeemable. You're so worth it. And I just feel like that song um, really kind of, no shadow he won't light up, no mountain he won't climb up coming after us, no wall he won't kick down, no lie he won't tear down coming after us. And all of that getting back to the place where when Kim and I saw God move, it was it was when we got ourselves out of the way. And and he moved over and over again. Some of this I saw at the time, some of it not until not until later, you know, where I saw, oh, that's what God was doing that day. And I didn't know it. But um, yeah, he wants all of you. And he's gonna pursue you with a reckless love. <laughs> so I know we went over a little on time, but I am gonna um I have a couple of things to close with. I think for me, I would love for there to be a takeaway of just his love, his grace, his mercy. It's free. It's within arm's reach. It's always been there. It's not going anywhere. So he's really just asking us to reach out, just reach out a little bit and grasp it. And I completely related when Susie shared a few weeks ago um, that in hindsight, she realized he was always there. I hope that, like, through hearing other people's stories and other people's experiences, we can reach quicker and accept more freely how he sees us because it's just right there. So I am going to invite the worship team up, and we will close with a couple of things so they can move the chairs all back around. Um, I wanted to share, we, I honestly, we can't share all of this and not give everyone here today an opportunity to make a decision about where you stand with God. And so I'm going to do that. I, um, I want to ask everyone to please bow your heads, close your eyes so we can remove the distraction of what's going on up here. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling an inner nudge. Maybe you want to make a declaration of recommitment between you and God, or you're sitting here and you've reached the end of yourself. Maybe you want to make a decision to follow him for the first time. So I'm asking with every eye closed that you can express this decision by raising your hand. We want to pray together, all of us, with our heads bowed, at any time, just raise your hand between you and God if that is the commitment that you want to make today. And then I'm going to say this prayer, and I just ask that everyone would repeat it. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I 
I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you. I know as personal as this decision is, um, and it is something precious between you and our Father. In my experience, it's of little consequence if we don't share it with someone else. This life, we are made and meant to have in community. And so I just want to ask, if you made a decision, that you would share it with someone. And we're going to have people to pray with you if you want to talk about that or um, have us pray over you and your decision or if you just need prayer this morning during these last songs. Um, I think Russ and Janet will be right over here during these worship songs. Brad over here and Joey and I will be in the back. And we would just love to pray with you. Thank you. Thank you.